Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media or visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com. This is the second installation of the Boston Biotech Series, produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston Biotech ecosystem. If you are a Johns Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston Biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work in Boston, the fastest growing biotech hub in the United States. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com backslash podcasts or in the show notes. My name is Joe Varielli, and I'm joined here with my co-host. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Today, our guest is Dr. Melissa Stundick. She's currently a VP of Business Development at Spiro Therapeutics, a multi-asset clinical stage biotech company focused on multi-drug resistant bacterial infections located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Spiro recently completed a pivotal phase three clinical trial for its oral drug regimen against complicated urinary tract infections and acute pyelonephritis, and is planning to file a new drug application with the FDA in the second half of 2021. Before this, Melissa was chief of the anti-infectives program at BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She also worked as a lead associate for Booz Allen Hamilton following completion of her PhD from the Biochemistry, Cellular, and Molecular Biology program at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. First, um, can you briefly introduce us to your role at Spiro Therapeutics? Sure. So Spiro is a small biotech startup um, that's, as you said, located in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In particular, I lead uh, Spiro's business development group, um, which includes traditional business to business transactions, as well as our efforts to search for partnerships um, from non-for-profit organizations, as well as government agencies uh, in this role as well. Let's backtrack a little bit. So what initially sparked your interest in science? Well, um, I actually had a really influential set of, of high school teachers, in particular a chemistry teacher who, um, who I attribute to uh, not just getting me excited about science, but setting me on a certain career path and a, a certain life path. Um, even when I was in elementary school, I remember we had to write a in a journal article, a journal each morning. And at one point in time, we were asked to write about our, our future career. And I wrote down that I would like to be a nurse. Um, and my the, the my sixth grade teacher would review these journal articles, and she would write back. And she said, "Well, um, aim higher. Why not try to be a doctor?" And I said, hmm, "Yeah, why not try to be a doctor?" <laughs> so. Um, from an early age, I thought that that medicine um, was a career that I wanted to try to pursue. And then um, while uh, I was in high school, I had a couple of influential uh, teachers, one particular, this chemistry teacher. Ultimately, um, she introduced me to Bates College, which is where I ended up going to school. Um, I grew up in a, a small town in Maine, um, and Bates is a, a, a small private liberal, liberal arts school that is not too far from where I grew up. Ultimately, um, she introduced me to a professor there uh, and, and um, also uh, helped me uh, um, with a, a tour of the campus. I ended up applying there early decision uh, and became a chemistry major there. 
Um, from there, I, I obviously uh, pursued a PhD at Hopkins. Um, I was in the BCMB program. Uh, in particular, I did my, my thesis work with Debbie Andrew, who's in the Department of Cell Biology. Um, her lab is focused on the development of, um, of the, the salivary gland in the Drosophila embryo. So we looked at both the, the genetic um, as well as development and other cellular factors that control salivary gland shape and positioning within the Drosophila embryo. Um, I knew that I did not want to, to stay in academia. Um, I knew that I wanted to take a different career path. Um, and at the time, you know, the, I, I would say that over time, the, the Hopkins Career Development Office has, has really expanded their capabilities and their services to their, their, um, their PhD and, and, and other graduate and medical students. Um, it's amazing that you're doing podcasts. Um, it's amazing that you're connecting so many of your current students with former alumni to learn more about various career options. Um, I can say that I had no idea when I was searching for my first job, all of the various possibilities that, that, are, um, that are different job options available to, to someone with a PhD. Um, you know, the, the very first job I took actually is, is not one that, that you mentioned because I don't include it on a resume. <laughs> I, I, I ended up taking a position at Human Genome Sciences within their, their patent law group. Um, one, one particular career avenue that, that the Hopkins um, Professional Development Office tended to, tended to bring people in from was patent law. Um, and so that is a, an alternative career that I was exposed to quite frequently um, through the, the Hopkins Development Office and thought, hmm, maybe, this is, maybe this is for me too. Um, and so that's what led me to take the position at Human Genome Sciences. Um, but I, I was only there for about two months uh, I quickly realized that patent law was not for me <laughs> um, and uh, had had some connections with another former um, Hopkins graduate student who had taken a position at Booz Allen a couple of years earlier, and he described the role of, of a consultant and some of the various interesting things that, that he was able to do in his position. And, and so ultimately, I, I made the switch and I'm very happy that I did. Um, and that set me kind of on the, the career path to first be a consultant to government organizations and then ultimately a government employee. And now, obviously, I, I've made the switch to industry. So when in the course of your PhD did you decide that a non-academic track role was, was more for you? And what sort of steps did you take in order to pursue other avenues in science? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... I think that the, the thinking has evolved over time um, when, you know, it's been more than more than 15 years since I was in graduate school now. And, and it was always just assumed um, that you that once you finished your PhD, you would go on and do a postdoc and then you would ultimately um, join academia. Um, and I, I'd say pretty early on, I knew that that wasn't the, the career path for me, probably by the time I finished my, my oral exams in, in my second year. Um, I, I did, I was not as proactive as I probably should have been in seeking out, um, what other opportunities were, um, and which is probably why I, I made some, made what I would consider to be the wrong choice at first. <laughs> um, but I would say that that's, that the students should not feel, um, 
at all uh, afraid to make the wrong choice. There's no right career path. There's no wrong way to get to where you ultimately want to be. Um, and everything is a learning experience. Um, I had I knew a number of different folks who were who were in academia, um, and you know I think it's. It's, it's certainly hard. Uh, the academic positions are few and far between. Um, they're extremely competitive. Um, and, you know, I just, uh, my interests lied elsewhere. So what aspects of that consulting role at, at Booz Allen in particular uh, interested you and, and uh, what made you believe that you were fit for that type of role? Yeah, so the particular group that I was a part of um, provided expert uh, scientific services to a number of different Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security clients. Uh, these clients were located at either Aberdeen Proving Ground um, or in uh, on some of the, the military bases that are in the surrounding Baltimore and, and DC areas. Um, in particular, uh, I was assigned to support a particular client that was um, on Aberdeen Proving Ground. The program was a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear screening program where samples were collected on a, on a daily basis and screened for chem-bio-rad nuke threats. And then assuming that one was not found, operations continued um, in the event that there was a, a positive detection or even a false positive detection, there was a, an incident response uh, you know, process that we would go through. Certainly by studying salivary gland development in the Drosophila embryo, it did not necessarily make me qualified for this position. <laughs> um, but you know a lot of the the basics that that I, I um, had learned in graduate school, just in terms of the, the science and the biology of, of bacteria, um, the the ability to run PCR reactions and antibody based detections and things like that, all of that is just fundamental um, science that you learn as part of the program, and, and all of that was certainly something that that I applied in the role. But I was able to now. Um, to take that knowledge and apply it to real world scenarios that, that had a real impact um, and learned a lot along the way about microbiology um, and in particular about the, about the biology of, of pathogens that are considered bio threats like Bacillus anthracis and Yersinia pestis and, and tolerances, et cetera. Um, and that was, those are the things that I think I really enjoyed about the position, the real world impact that I felt like I was having on a daily basis, and then the ability to take what I had learned in school and now expand upon that significantly. Um, because we were providing a service to Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security clients, the role obviously involved getting a security clearance as well. Um, and within the, the team that I supported at, at Booz, um, you have a number of different clients. You can either be assigned to one client and you show up in, in their offices every day, you know, five days a week, or you can split your time over multiple clients. And as you continue your career progression at Booz Allen, there is more and more of an expectation that you're going to be supporting multiple clients and that you will build a team of people around you that then go out and find more work for the for the for the consulting firm and bring um, and you'll be supporting more and more clients throughout you know, the reach of your team. So um, I found the I found the the projects where we got to do intelligence analysis really interesting. At that point in time, 
uh, I went back to the University of Maryland and pursued a series of classes where I that ultimately resulted in getting a um, certificate in an intelligence analysis and really thought that when I left Booz Allen, I would probably try to pursue something in the intelligence arena. And those I was certainly looking at those jobs um, when I left Booz Allen as well, um, but happened to come across this position at BARDA um, as a federal government employee within um, BARDA, which is, it's another obviously government acronym, <laughs> but it stands for Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. And it's an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, at that point in time, they were forming a new group called the Broad Spectrum Antimicrobials Group that had the charge of, of um, partnering with companies developing new antibiotics and helping those companies so that antibiotics could get through clinical development and, and ultimately approved for both a um, biodefense indication as well as a public health indication. Um, so, you know, the, the role seemed extremely interesting to me, um, and ultimately that's where I decided to, to take my career after Booz Allen as opposed to, to going a more through a more um, intelligence route. So I'm curious, compared to your experience working in an academic lab, how is working in, you know, for a government agency different? Are there any similarities to your two roles um, and the two experiences? Yeah, so as a government um, employee, you can imagine um, there's a lot of structure. <laughs> there's a, there are a lot of checks and balances. Um, oftentimes things move more slowly than you would like because of the various levels of, of approval that are needed and the various um, coordinations that are required across, across multiple organizations. Um, some of those, some I can imagine that there are some similarities there with uh, a large, you know, academic institution like Hopkins, where certainly there are bureaucratic processes that you sometimes have to work your way through. Um, other than you know thinking about thinking about the science, you know, they are quite different. <laughs> They're very, very different. Um, when I say thinking about the science, uh, so what we would do at BARDA is we would form partnerships with companies that are developing medical countermeasures. Our group was specifically focused on antibiotics, but BARDA's mission as a whole uh, includes the development and stockpiling of medical countermeasures to address three primary threat areas, chem-bio-rad nuke threats, uh, um, influenza, and emerging infectious diseases. And um, medical countermeasures, just by definition, just so, so everyone um, is aware of how I'm using the term, it refers to everything from um, preventative measures like, like vaccines um, to treatment options um, like antivirals and, and antibiotics um, to detection technologies as well as supportive technologies like M95 masks and ventilators. Um, BARDA's role is to support a strategic national stockpile where um, approved products or products that are approved under an EUA are stockpiled for use in, in an event of an emergency. Um, or, and also to help the advanced research of, and development of those products. Namely, um, they usually begin um, funding programs on or around phase one, though um, they're, they're, sometimes they do uh, dip a toe a little earlier into preclinical development as well. So when you partner with a company um, and help fund their the company's research and development, um, BARDA is very hands-on. So they're reviewing every 
study protocol, every study report, the results that come out of those studies. And so you're really thinking critically about the science and, and helping um, almost act as, as an extra set of consultants to this development company. And in that way, you know, you're thinking about the science on a daily basis and thinking about, you know, how can I, how can I, um, so for example, if you're doing a, a drug manufacturing campaign, are there tweaks to the manufacturing process that can perhaps uh, improve robustness of the process or scalability so that a, a larger quantity of, of batch size can be made? In that way, it's similar to, to academic science where you're really critically reviewing results and thinking about how to, how to, um, to maybe uh, adjust experimental conditions to, to, to reach a certain desired outcome. Um, so I, I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that if you get outside of academia, suddenly you leave the science behind because that's not the case at all in, um, in a large number of, of roles that I can think of outside of academia, you still stay really close to the science. Yeah, and, and BART has been instrumental in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and future preparation of, of additional pandemics that are unfortunately going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it also seems like you moved into a serious leadership role as chief of the anti-infectives program at BARDA. How did you develop leadership skills early in your career? And were there opportunities at Hopkins uh, that you saw while in your PhD to develop as a leader? Yeah, I think, you know, as you're as you're going through the the years of, of your PhD program, there are certainly opportunities to, to develop leader skill leadership skills, either by taking uh, an undergraduate under your your wing um, in the lab or some of the some of the um, the earlier graduate students that come into the lab after you. Um, it's I, that's how you cultivate, I think, these things at the graduate school level. Um, when I joined Booz Allen, um, there, as I said, there was a team-based structure. So as you, um, as you kind of prove yourself um, and build more work for the company, you have the opportunity to hire more people onto your team. Um, and so by the time I left Booz Allen, I had a team of, I think it was close to seven people um, that, that I was managing. Um, a lot of it is just on the job, <laughs> honestly. A lot of the skills are, are either inherent um, or things that you learn on the job. Um, some of the, I, I've had the distinct pleasure of being um, on teams where I report to people who are really good mentors and people who I believe are, are really strong leaders. Um, and I've tried to emulate them uh, and learn from them as much as possible. Um, that's that was true at Barda. The individual that I reported to, I think, was a was a really good mentor and supervisor. Um, and then at at Spiro, uh, I would say the same is true. I have learned so much from um, our our CEO as well as the individual that I report to. Her name is Christina Larkin, our COO. Um, so there there are certainly opportunities. There are also a lot of op opportunities for learning um, in more of an academic setting to enhance your leadership skills. Um, at Booz Allen, there were a ton of courses that are available um, to enhance your leadership skills. 
Uh, and the same has been true if, if I pursued them at Spiro as well. And so um, I would encourage anyone to take advantage of those more formal learning opportunities when they're available. Um, one thing that we now use at, at Spiro is LinkedIn Learning, which is available to anyone. And I don't know, maybe Hopkins has a, a subscription to this as well. Um, if there, if Hopkins does have a subscription, then there are an entire suite of um, online classes that become available, um, and you can take, you know, twenty-minute classes, anything from like a twenty-minute class to multiple sessions over over several days on any topic that that interests you. And there are a large number of leadership courses. Yeah. So you briefly spoke a little bit earlier about your role at Spiro um, and their mission, which is to develop um, treatments for multi-drug resistant infections. And I'm just curious, could you comment on, you know, sort of your career progression there? We noticed you started in strategic alliances. Now you're vice president of business development. Um, and then sort of what's the typical career trajectory for a role that's not at the bench in a biotech company? Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to start by saying how I first um, became aware that that Spiro existed as a company. So in my role um, at Barda, uh, pretty much any company that was developing an antibiotic would um, engage us in conversation uh, just so that they could introduce us to the, the therapeutic candidate that they're developing and talk about whether there are any opportunities for, for Barda funding for their pro programs. Spiro was formed um, by actually a, a Hopkins alum. Um, so our CEO, his name is Ankit Mahadevia, um, and he has an MD from Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, he and I happened to temporally be at Hopkins at the same time, though never ran into each other. Um, Ankit, uh, once he finished his, his, um, his medical training, he took a consulting route as well for a period of time and then joined um, and then joined the pharma industry uh, in a business development role. Um, he has a, a, a very strong um, interest in entrepreneurialism. Uh, and so from pharma, he joined a venture capital company called Atlas Ventures. And it's through his role as, um, as, a, as a venture partner at Atlas that he has formed a number of different companies over time. And one of those was Spiro Therapeutics. And he's now dedicating, you know, 100% of his time to being the Spiro CEO. Um, but I had met Ankit at a few different um, scientific conferences where uh, either I was attending or presenting, um, and he introduced himself to me. We'd had a, a few different conversations about Spiro. Um, we actually invited Ankit and a couple of his other teammates to Barda to present to us the story of Spiro because we wanted to learn more about um, what it takes to form and then ultimately um, operate a startup company. And this was part of market research that we were doing um, before BARDA launched a program called Carbex, which now um, is operated out of Boston University, but funds a lot of early stage research into antibiotics and antifungals. So um, I happened to be finally, you know, thinking about my, my next career move, uh, but attended a scientific conference where I met with Ankit and um, a few different team members that he had recently brought on. I knew that I wanted to stay in, in antibiotic development. I knew that this was a, a therapy area that I was really passionate about. There aren't a lot of companies that are still developing antibiotics, but Spiro was one of them. 
um, I saw that this was a small company that was building a, a really high class team. I had met several of the other individuals prior that that Ankit was was adding to his staff. Um, and the science they were doing, I felt was really novel and, and interesting and exciting. And so it wasn't long after Ankit and I met at this scientific meeting that um, I reached out to him and I said, you know, if you are if you are um, looking for someone who has an expertise in in informing partnerships with government organizations, um, I know someone who might be interested in the position. And he said, yeah, send them my way. And I said, well, it's me. <laughs> and that's what started the interview process. Um, and ultimately, you know, we we got to the point where Ankit said, you know, you you like us, we like you, come join the company and we'll figure out what you're gonna do over time. And that's exactly what we've been doing for the past five years. Um, my role has definitely evolved over time. When I joined the company, I think I was employee 12 and now we're getting close to having a hundred employees. Um, with any small startup, the the your responsibilities on a day-to-day -day basis just depend on what needs to be done. Because <laughs> you often, have more responsibilities and more things that need to be done than people that you have on your staff. Um, so when I joined, certainly we knew that I was going to help position Spiro to get more contracts and grants from the federal government. Um, and we knew that there was probably going to be a, a business development component to that as well, to some extent. Um, at BARDA, I also played a, a role in, in policy. So there, there's, um, that naturally continued at Spiro, where um, I work closely with uh, with lobbying groups and other um, patient advocacy groups, industry advocacy groups to to talk to folks on the Hill um, and other government agencies to advocate for legislative changes or reimbursement changes. Um, and that's still a, a role that that I continue at Spiro as well. Um, but, you know, there are so many things that I have been able to do that don't necessarily ref aren't necessarily reflected by the title just because Spiro is a startup company. Um, and that is one of the things that I have loved the most about the position is just the exposure that I have gotten while here to every aspect of running a business and growing a business and trying to ensure that a business has has money to keep the lights on on a daily basis. Um, it was not long um, before we did a couple of, of transactions uh, and brought a couple new um, therapeutic candidates into the Spiro portfolio. And with doing that, you you obviously either in license or acquire a lot of intellectual property. And while we work with outside law firms to, um, to write and, and maintain our, our patent portfolio, um, someone in-house needed to manage that. And so Ankit said, hey, do you want to do it? And I said, okay. <laughs> um, and it resulted in, in me managing our intellectual property portfolio and really learning a lot about patent law, which ironically, I remember I started my career there and I said, no, I don't want to do it. Um, ironically, got involved again. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's just been a learning opportunity. Uh, so, um over time, you know, as we have grown as an organization, 
more individuals are added that have a specific area of expertise. And so you, your, your kind of job responsibilities in some ways narrow over time. Um, I now have a, a, a team that I work with. That team largely helps manage our government, um, government contracts and grants. And so my role is more in strategic oversight of that, as well as trying to look for um, more traditional business development partnerships, such as you know opportunities to add to our pipeline through in licensing, or um, a lot of uh, of outreach to other um, pharma organizations to see if there's any interest in, in either licensing or acquisition of of our company or our portfolio. So, what is it like working for a small startup that has a late stage clinical asset? I mean, we know that in biotech, some companies can exist for even tens of years before even reaching a, a phase three clinical trial. So, mm -hmm. so can you tell us about what that's like from a business development standpoint? Yeah. And you, you make a really important point. Um, it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my, how this works for an antibiotic, because <laughs> that's what I have been involved in doing. But I have to say, this is not the, um, this is not the trajectory for other therapeutic areas. Antibiotics are, are unique. Um, so what, what, and you're entirely right. When you, when you take a job with a startup organization that is really small, you never know how long that startup is going to survive. Um, I'm pretty sure when I started our CEO, our, CEO, our chief scientific officer, who's, who's been in, in the industry for, I don't know, 30 plus years now, I'm pretty sure he said the average life of a startup is around 18 months. And at that point, we were pretty close to 18 months. And so he said, you know, we've already outlived most startup organizations. So just understand the risk that you're, you're getting yourself into when you join the company. Um, what typically happens in, in most therapeutic areas and what also decades ago used to happen with antibiotics as well, is that an, an initial therapeutic idea would come out of an academic lab or a small startup company. And that's where the original intellectual property would be generated. And then you would see that intellectual property or that program or that product, it would change hands multiple times as it progresses from discovery to preclinical development to clinical development and then ultimately approval and launch. And by the time you get to approval and launch, the entity that, that typically has ownership of that program is a large pharma organization that has a global commercial footprint and a global reach. So a small startup company could expect to either get acquired at some point early, or they could expect to do a licensing deal where their technology is licensed to, to a bigger player with, with more resources. That's not what happens in antibiotics now. Um, and to understand why, you kind of have to understand um, the, the, the evolution of the antibiotics market. So I think everyone is becoming educated on the fact that there is a global health problem of antimicrobial resistance. And that's the result of bacteria developing resistance to the antibiotics that are commonly used in clinical practice. The more antibiotics are used, the more bacteria are exposed to them, the more likely they are to develop resistance mechanisms that allow them to get around and survive those antibiotics. The 
problem is that the antibiotic pipeline has not kept pace with resistance development. Um, it's been generations really since the, the last class of, of antibiotics has come to market. We're just looking, the things that have come to market more recently are just um, the next iteration of existing classes. Uh, and so that's created this problem where bacteria are developing resistance, but there are no new drugs that are in the pipeline to be able to address that resistance problem. And so why are there no new pipe, no new drugs in the pipeline? Um, it's, it's both a scientific and business reason. Um, from a scientific perspective, the, the discovery efforts for a long time focused on small molecule drugs. Large pharma organizations put decades of time into mining different chemical structures to try to find new um, classes of antibiotics. And we've kind of come to the end of that well of discovery using that mechanism. Um, so the science is hard. The science is not straightforward. But then in addition, if you think about the return on investment of an antibiotic versus the return on investment from, I don't know, let's say a cardiovascular drug or an Alzheimer's drug, they're very different. So if, if I'm a CEO of a company and I have to make a decision on whether I invest research and development dollars in an antibiotic versus a cardiovascular drug, I'm going to think, okay, an antibiotic is a, it's a cure, right? And if it works well and does what it's supposed to in somewhere between um, five to 14 days, you are going to take this drug and then it's going to cure your infection and you will never have to take it again. And so it's a very finite um, treatment window. And then the cost that you can charge for an antibiotic is also quite low. There's a lot of generic competition. Um, and there are other factors that, that play into this as well, but suffice to say reimbursement, our antibiotics are not reimbursed for the life-saving potential that they have. Instead, they're, they're pretty cheap. So it's a cheap drug that's just administered for a short period of time. And as resistance is developing, um, you first want to step through generic drugs first and find out that they don't work. And only when there is, a, there is a need because of resistance to use a new branded drug, then do you wanna use that? And so there's a fairly limited number of patients per year that are gonna require this new, this new branded drug, right? So small price, short treatment course, limited patient population. The math just doesn't work out for a large return on investment. But if you contrast that to something like a cardiovascular drug, you're taking the drug for the rest of your life, you've got millions and millions of patients. And so even if it is a low price or generic, it's still a huge return on investment compared to the antibiotic, right? And so more and more companies over time have exited antibiotic development. And that includes large pharma companies. Um, I can only really say um, that there are two large pharma companies that are still active in, um, in researching and developing antibiotics. The innovation has, then um, is, is happening at small startup companies like Spiro. And so if large pharma has exited, 
there's no entity there driving this life cycle that I talked about earlier, where the IP is 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 originally filed and discovered at an academic uh, or small startup uh, environment, and then that IP changes hands to a slightly larger organization, and then ultimately to large pharma. Because large pharma is not there driving this, that means that companies like Spiro have to take products from preclinical development all the way through to commercialization. And the burden is on us to develop the expertise um, to, to, to do not just the, the discovery, but the preclinical development, the clinical development, and now commercialization. Um, Spiro is, has been lucky enough that we have chosen products that have ultimately made it into the clinic. Our lead program, um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the, the session, um, is a product that's called Tebipenem Pavoxyl Hydrobromide. Um, it is an immediate release tablet formulation of a carbapenem that we're developing for the treatment of complicated urinary tract infections and acute pyelonephritis. It is unique because it is uh, an oral carbapenem. So a carbapenem is a class of antibiotics um, that has been around for, for decades, um, but they are only available by IV formulation. So you have to be administered into the, you have to be admitted into the hospital in order to have uh, a carbapenem administered. Carbapenems as a class have retained really good activity against gram-negative bacteria and including gram-negative um, bacteria that also harbor specific resistance mechanisms. So as a class, carbapenems are, have, have not only just, they've been available, but they have um, been kind of enhanced in importance because of the fact that they're still effective against these, gram these resistant gram-negative bacteria. So, What's important about our product is that it is a, an oral outpatient tablet presentation. So patients that are suffering from these infections can now be administered a prescription um, and not have to be admitted, admitted into the hospital. Um, it saves the patient from healthcare costs, it saves the hospital system from healthcare costs, um, and it also allows the patient to continue on with their life as, as they normally would have. Um, the product is in um, an NDA readiness stage, which means that we have completed our phase three trials um, and we are preparing uh, the, the new drug application that will get submitted to the FDA to support approval of tebipenem in the US. Um, and we are building out a commercial infrastructure now so that we can, we can launch and market tebipenem in the US on our own. Yeah, I'm really glad that you touched on a lot of those topics, and it's such a unique perspective working in antibiotics. Um, and I would imagine that because the need is so strong for antibiotics against these multidrug resistant bacteria, that you would have more support uh, early on in the discovery preclinical phase from uh, organizations like BARDA, or maybe the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, so uh, is is there more opportunity for uh, funding the development of these new antibiotics um, to make up for the lack of uh, support from big pharma in the commercialization phase? You're, you're spot on. Um, and what you describe is, is definitely true. And it's exactly why 
BARDA funded this broad spectrum antimicrobials program in the 2010 timeframe. So grant and contract funding is available through, through NIAD, through BARDA, through um, organizations like the Department of Defense to fund research and development of new antibiotics. Um, and that funding was enhanced significantly uh, over the past 10 years. Um, in particular, in the Obama administration, they launched an initiative called the CARB Initiative. It's the, the National Action Plan to, um, to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, they formed this, they, they, they developed a CARB National Strategy, they developed a CARB National Plan, and as part of that, um, a number of government organizations um, had their funding increased so that they could start to do their part to address AMR. So you can imagine the CDC got more money for things like surveillance. Um, there, are, uh, there was additional funding um, to think about the use of, of antibiotics in veterinary medicine. Um, organizations like BARDA and NIH got additional funding to support research at companies like, like mine. Um, that grant and contact track funding is absolutely essential um, to help in the preclinical stages and clinical stages of development. Um, nearly every company now that it develops an antibiotic is funded by BARDA or NIH or this, this, this group that I mentioned earlier called CARBEX, which is run out of, of Boston University and is ultimately funded by BARDA, um, as well as uh, some other sources of funding as well. Um, but where we find the gap now is in assistance in helping to ensure not just that the drug gets to approval, but that the drug um, is launched and then sustained in the marketplace. So what, what you describe as grant and contract funding, that's something that we call push funding. Push funding helps defray the cost of research and development. But on the other side of approval, you would call that pull funding. Pull funding is um, anything from additional years of patent exclusivity that can be awarded to higher reimbursement to perhaps milestone payments that an innovator like Spiro would receive upon meeting certain milestones. That's where a lot of the focus of, of policy and legislative discussions uh, is now, um, because that's where we need to, to make the most improvements is ensuring that there are pull sources of funding. Um, there have been examples in the recent past where companies like Spiro have taken a product all the way through discovery, through clinical development, and they've gotten their product approved, and then they've ultimately gone bankrupt. Um, this happened with a company called Acaeogen that was based in South San Francisco. They have a, an antibiotic called plazomycin, um, and they did everything right. <laughs> they got their drug approved. It was large. It, it, there was a, a large BARDA contract that helped with the research and development costs during clinical development. But then ultimately there was, um, there's a, a funding gap because the moment that you start selling your drug, yes, there's a revenue stream, but you're still having to pay the costs of operating the company and um, all of the, the infrastructure that it takes to keep your drug on the market. Um, and antibiotics simply don't create a, a, a revenue stream that offsets those costs um, quickly. So in your launch trajectory, you're, you're, you start selling your drug and over time, your sales on an annual basis increase. 
but it's not until you're, you're several years into the launch do you start to be able to um, cover your costs on an annual basis of just keeping your drug on the market. And then it's an even greater number of years before you ultimately recover all of the R&D costs that it took to get your drug to approval. And so because there is no pull source of funding right now, a company like 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 Akagen and like Spiro has to go to investors and to the public markets to try to raise the hundreds of millions of dollars that it takes on an annual basis just to keep your drug on the market. And just like large pharma has exited the space, investors, traditional investors have um, have exited the space as well for this same exact reasons because they know that they can get a, a larger return on their investment from other therapeutic areas. And so it's because of this, this gap in funding post-approval, post-approval and between the time when you actually start to break even with your revenues, um, that, that some of these companies have gone bankrupt. Um, and it's why we still need a very healthy ecosystem that includes investment from the investor community, as well as the, the, the public sources of funding like, like grants and contracts. This is fascinating. Um, and you bring up a great point too, not only about your own career trajectory, but in keeping in line with the theme of, you know, overview of careers in biotech, you're talking about the industry scientists that are making this happen. You're talking about the people working in science policy to create legislative changes, people in the biotechs themselves, and then even people going into venture capital mm -hmm. to sort of fund it. And so I, this is just wonderful, <laughs> you know, um, but touching on all of that and within that theme are there any sort of careers in biotech that you think many phd students don't actually think about within this life cycle or don't consider going into sure and i will just say from my own perspective when i was back at hopkins and i thought about a career in industry i always imagined that that meant that you were at a bench you know doing the science and pushing a pipette and that's not necessarily the case you know certainly there are those opportunities um, but there are a lot more roles and functions that are required to get a, a drug or a vaccine or a diagnostic um, developed and, and to patients that need them. Everything from I mean, business development is one, um, but uh, if, if an individual wanted to get into clinical operations to help um, uh, basically design clinical trials and then work with the, the companies that are, have a global reach that conduct these clinical trials. Um, you could get involved in clinical operations, regulatory science, where you're um, guiding both the strategy and developing the documents to go support conversations with the FDA or the EMA or other global regulatory organizations. Um, we have an entire team that thinks about just the, the manufacturing of our, our drugs. Um, there is an entire team that thinks just about safety and toxicology and pharmacokinetic profiles of the drug. Um, any one of these functions are certainly pathways that, that a PhD scientist can take. Um, medical writers, even just consultants with specific areas of expertise, we bring in all of the time. And then one of the key functions is just project management. Um, this was true at BARDA, it was true at Booz Allen, and it's true at Spiro that 
program management is key. <laughs> and, and this is outside of science too. Um, but your ability to just carefully monitor the progress of activities, the schedule of activities, and the budget associated with activities um, is, is a key role. And um, and it's you can you can apply that almost anywhere. So as Jenna mentioned, we're talking about Boston Biotech really because of the sheer size and output and productivity of the Boston Biotech ecosystem. And I'm wondering how both uh, you personally and uh, Spiro as a company have benefited from being in the biotech ecosystem in Boston. Yeah, you're entirely right that Boston is, and, and Cambridge in particular is one of the, the hubs in the US for, for biotechs. Um, and it, it it's a extremely hot job market. <laughs> so I would certainly <laughs> encourage anyone who's looking to get into the space to, to come to Cambridge. Um, one of the things that, that Spiro did uh, early on is they said, we wanna hire the right people regardless of where they're located. And because of that, um, a lot of our staff are actually not located in Boston. I still live in Maryland. Um, and coincidentally, that has been a huge benefit now that COVID has occurred because um, everyone is home anyway. So it really doesn't matter whether your home office is in Cambridge, Massachusetts or halfway across the world. Um, and I do think that COVID is ultimately pushing us in a direction where you don't necessarily have to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts to get involved in the, the Boston biotech scene, um, as long as you're willing to, to travel there on a somewhat regular basis so that you can see your coworkers in person and you can network um, within the, the Boston biotech networking sphere. I think that's, you know, that's the most important part than having to necessarily move to, to, to Boston and, and the surrounding suburbs. But it's true that there are a large number of opportunities. Um, new companies are being formed all of the time. Uh, and the more you can kind of network within that sphere, the more you can, can open up doors for yourself in the future. Yeah, and you mentioned already that your CEO is a Hopkins alum. Uh, mm -hmm. Hopefully, you've interacted with other Hopkins alumni um, in your time, and you know, even even in the virtual Boston biotech ecosystem. For sure, yeah. No, I, several of my um, my former uh, graduate school classmates are are still located in the Boston biotech sphere as well. Um, and at the same time, you know, some of my my Hopkins. Um, my, my Hopkins classmates are also still at Barda, um, and there are some still at Booz Allen. <laughs> um, uh, they're, they're located throughout the FDA, the DOD, you know, Hopkins graduates have, have gone pretty much everywhere. This has been um, awesome. I mean, I, I've learned so much about antibiotic development and, um, you know, perspectives from your area of, of biotech. So, yeah, thank you. Anytime. No, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us. Uh, don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. And I'm Joe Barrielli. Thank you for listening. <laughs>